If you got your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we're not going to get there for a little while, okay? So don't freak out. So, you know, sometimes I was, um, I was in a sermon once or many times where the preacher says we're going to start with this text and we're going to get four points in, and then it's like 40 minutes in and he's barely gotten to the text and he's only on the first point. And you think, oh my goodness, we're never going to get out of here. Well, just hang in. Uh, we're going to get to the text in a minute. I didn't forget about it. We're going to get there um, uh, in just a minute. But let's pray before we get into the, te- into the scripture and just ask God's blessing on his word as we gather and t- to hear from him. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us uh, together to hear your word. Thank you for speaking. Without you speaking, we would never know. We would never know who you are. We would never know what the, the point of all of this is. And so, so often people don't know because they, they don't have ears to hear and we don't want to be like that. So Lord, we just pray we'd have ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you do need a Bible, uh, we have uh, uh, Tom and Robert in the back. If you just wave your hand, they can get you a Bible, and, uh, and you can uh, follow along, or you can use your Bible app or whatever. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I love Christmas time. I love Christmas time. I love the hustle and the bustle. I, like, I actually like the stress. Um, I, I love seeing the Quebec license plates on the streets because you know it's that time of year. Uh, I love the busyness. I even, now now don't tell my wife I told you this, but I even sometimes enjoy the occasional Hallmark Christmas movie. Um, And I love Christmas music. I I start, for me, Christmas music starts at 12.01 a.m. on November 1st, and then ends at 11.59 p.m. on December 25th. And I I get as much Christmas music in as I can, but then when Christmas is over, it's time to be done. At least that's how how I feel about it. Some people are different. Um, I, I love... I love Christian Christmas songs. I love ones that are about Jesus. But I also love cheesy, you know, Christmas songs. I like, I like Bing Crosby singing Maliki Liki Maka is the thing to say on a warm Hawaiian Christmas day. I love it all. Um, you know, all this, the most wonderful time of the year, the, the scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And sometimes these Christmas songs get to the heart of why this season is special to us. Tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. I know that's a big part of what makes Christmas special for me and probably for you. Um, like the story, we, we, one Christmas we had, uh, my parents and, and the family had lobster. They made lobster for Christmas. And I got sick as a dog. And I was up in bed, sick as a dog, looking forward to my lobster tail once I felt better. And I got better. Then It was finally December 27th. I felt good. And they ate all the lobster, and I didn't get any lobster. Yes. Yes. So, or, or, or my favorite Christmas, one of my favorite Christmases was the year uh, Laura and I, it was our first Christmas together, and I surprised her with a special gift. What she didn't know is, so, so you kind of got a back, back story a little bit. So we met in Kentucky, but I was from California, and she was from Florida. And, 
and she explained to me that growing up in Florida, you know, you don't have chimneys. So how does, how does Santa come in your house? Well, he sa- she says, well, ah, obviously he uses the front door. And so, um, so we're doing our Christmas exchange at my p- family's house in California, and we're doing all our gifts and whatever, and then I pre-planned everything, and at the door there was a knock, and it was my dad dressed up like Santa Claus, and he brought her in a gift and said, hey, I came through the front door so you'd know it was me since you're from Florida, and he brought her this special gift, and inside of it I said, well, you got to close your eyes for this one, and then she opens her eyes, and I'm on my knees, and I got the ring, will you marry me? And then she, she said no. No, she didn't. She said yes. <laughs> it was great. She actually made a point to say yes because she sent, heard so many stories of people and they get so excited that, the, the, that they forget to actually say yes. And so she made sure to say yes. And it was, that's one of my favorite, maybe the very favorite Christmas. Um, and you have your own stories. You've got happy stories. You've got maybe some sad stories or some difficult stories or some painful stories. Um, some of them are funny, some are embarrassing, but, but we all have these, these tales of the glories or maybe the, the difficulties of Christmases long ago. That's part of what makes the season special. And most especially what makes the season special is the tale of the Christmas story. Um, not simply a Christmas story, not simply your family's Christmas story or one of my own personal Christmas stories as special as it is, but the story of the point of Christmas in the first place. Now, some of you I know may not be that familiar with the Bible or, or the, the Christian story or the Christian faith, but maybe you know a little bit about the basics, right? You got Mary, you got Joseph, you got the, 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 the ride into Bethlehem, you've got no room in the inn, you've got the manger and the stable, and you've got the baby Jesus, um, the, the, the angels and the shepherds, the three kings bringing gifts, although that probably happened you know, a couple years later. This is typically where we, st- when we talk about the Christmas story, we start there. We start in the beginning of what uh, in the Bible is called the New Testament or the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, and we, we start there with, with the Christmas story, which is a great place to start, but it's also a little bit like the Star Wars saga. So the first Star Wars movie came out in 1977, and it was, some of you know, episode, oh my goodness, We need some discipleship in here. Okay, episode four was the first Star Wars movie. And and then the next movie in 1980 was episode five, and then in 83 was episode six. And it wasn't until uh, 22 years after the first movie was released that episode one came out, the, the, the backstory, or what they were calling the prequels. Well, what, what we see in the scripture is that when we talk about the Christmas story, starting in the Gospels, it's a little like starting the Star Wars series at episode four. There's a whole backstory to, to the story itself that is, in fact, part of the story. You see, this book, the Bible, that we do everything based on, we base everything in our church and hopefully our lives in, on this book is 66 chapters, which are actually individual works of literature or or stories or history or poetry uh, or letters, and there's 66 of them written from 1500 BC up until 90 AD, and they tell one cohesive storyline. And so before you get to the Christmas story in the Gospels in the New Testament, you know, about that far in, all the way there, there's this whole backstory. There's this whole backstory of of 
the, 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 the way the stage has been set, that is, that is the Christmas story as well. Last week I mentioned that there are four big chapters to the Bible. There's four big sections. There's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that God makes this perfect world and people in it. And then in Genesis 3, that people rebel against him, and they, they run away from him instead of toward him. They, they disobey him instead of obey him. This is what the Bible calls sin. And that because of that, there's been a separation that's come between God and people, between people and people, and between life and death. There, there's all this brokenness that's entered the world because of sin and rebellion. But then God, he begins a, a process and he puts into motion a plan to restore and to redeem the world. And so that's the, the third chapter of the story, and that's most of the story, starting in Genesis 3 all the way until you get to the end of the book in Revelation 20 is the story of redemption. But then we see at the end of the book in Revelation 21 and 22, and then all throughout foreshadowed and foretold the promise of the final restoration, the final consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. Now I realize that, that some of you they, you, you don't know much about the Bible. Maybe you're skeptical about the Bible. And, and that for me to tell the story, you're like, okay, that's interesting. But here's, here's what we believe. It, we believe that this story is not just a story. It is the story. We believe this is the true story of the world that God has written down for us in this book. And I know that's a big claim. I know that's a big claim. And that... that that some of you may have questions about why can I trust the Bible or why does the Bible matter. But what we're going to talk about this morning is what I think is a really persuasive case that God, in fact, wrote the Bible. That's what we believe. We believe that this is a book that was written down by people. Moses was back there in 1500 uh, B.C. writing stuff down, and then David in 1000 B.C. writing stuff down, and then you've got uh, Jeremiah in 586 and 600 B.C. writing stuff down, and then you've got Matthew in 50 A.D. after Jesus writing stuff down. We believe people, human authors, wrote this book, but we believe that they were inspired by a divine author, that God himself through these human authors, wrote this book. And I think one way that that bears out, and one, for me, persuasive uh, reason for believing that, is the way the whole story fits together. So when I was in high school, I took an English class with a teacher named Mr. Barton. And Mr. Barton was teaching us about writing stories. And uh, he... he he taught us this, this, these lessons on writing stories that I quite honestly didn't pay that much attention to. And he tells us how to write the elements of a good short story and the, a good narrative. And then one of our class assignments is to write a short story. Now, I'm, I have always been, I think, a decent writer, and I wrote a story that he said was really, really good. And he said it was so good that he would think that it was probably good enough to get published in the little school literary journal that we had at my high school. It wasn't anything fancy. He said, though, it's missing one thing. There's one important component of storytelling that it's missing. It has this sort of this surprise twist at the end of the story. Um, and he said, it, it's missing the element of foreshadowing. He said, remember we talked about, and I said, I don't remember we talked about it because I quite honestly, Mr. Barton wasn't paying attention. Of course, I saw, I didn't say that. I thought that. I said, Mr. Barton, Mr. Barton says, 
you need to foreshadow the ending of the story in the beginning of the story. There needs to be some hint that in retrospect you say, oh, now that makes sense. God is a great storyteller. And so there are all of these elements of foreshadowing to foreshadow a beautiful surprise ending at the end of the story, a beautiful happy ending at the end of the story. And what we're going to see in this, in this sermon this morning is we're going to see what I call the Christmas backstory. The Christmas backstory. And we're going to see that all throughout the Old Testament, in every part of the Scripture, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, that God is foreshadowing, He's foretelling, He is promising the end of the story. And, and in, in, the, in, in this sermon, we're going to see that, and what we're going to see is that that's not just an interesting fact. Like, oh, wow, I didn't know this prophecy. That's cool. Like, that's good. But what we're going to see is that if God is that good at telling the story, that you can trust him to write your story. When we approach the scripture uh, and we approach the Old Testament, uh, we see all these different books. And you start in Genesis and then you get to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and you see all these books. Well, there, there's actually an organization to these books. And there were three sections. If you ever have a Hebrew Bible, I, I meant to bring my Hebrew Bible, but I, I didn't uh, bring it this morning. And on the front of the Hebrew Bible, there's going to be three Hebrew words. It's going to say Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And what Torah means is the law. And this is the first five books of the Old Testament. And what the Nevi'im means is the prophets. Navi is the word for prophet. And if you ever saw the movie Avatar, the, the, the people on that planet are called the, the Navi, right? It's a Hebrew word for prophet. It's trying to play off of that. And then there's the Ketuvim, uh, that, that is the, the writings. Jesus himself says in Luke 24:44, you don't have to turn there, but this, Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is another word for the writings, that poetic section of Scripture must be fulfilled. He's saying every part of the Old Testament, every part of the Hebrew Scripture is telling my story. That there's, before you get to the Christmas story, there is the Christmas backstory. And so what I want to do is I want to look at uh, one or two places in each section of Scripture of the Old Testament that foretell the birth of Jesus. So first in the law or the Torah, you're there in Genesis 3. I told you I'd get there. Genesis 3, verse 14 says, uh, so, so you remember, just, just remember, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation. And then in Genesis 3 is the fall. Man and woman disobey God. They're tempted by the serpent. And so God brings a curse on all creation. And he curses the serpent's who is the embodiment of Satan, the enemy of God. And he says, you are cursed, Genesis 3.14, more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So in this perfect world that God's created for our first ancestors, this, this serpent sneaks in and he deceives them and 
he, he gets them to question God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's love. And the result of, of their rebellion brings a curse on the world because they disobey God. Uh, when, when trust gets betrayed and a relationship gets compromised and love is rejected, there's serious consequences to that. And God curses all of creation in Genesis 3, but there's also a bright glimmer of hope where he foretells the future hope. This is the, this first element of foreshadowing in the divine story, written 1,500 years before the coming of Christ. He says to the serpent that the offspring of the woman will strike his head. What he's foretelling there is, is the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary the Virgin, and the gestation and then the birth of Jesus that will lead to the defeat of the serpent, of Satan. And when he says that he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, you get this picture of if you found a snake in the grass and you wanted to stomp on its head to kill it so it wouldn't hurt anybody, you stepped on the snake with your heel and the snake got one last bite in. Well, that could be fairly uh, painful or, or even dangerous, but it's certainly not as tragic for you as it is for the snake because your heel will heal, but his head is crushed. And what, what it's foretelling there, it's ultimately foretelling the birth of Jesus and it's also foretelling the crucifixion of Jesus. It's foretelling the, the fact that Jesus would be crucified and Satan would get in a strike at his heel, that he would be wounded for our sins and he would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be crucified and killed and buried. But that was not the end of the story, that it would be a temporary defeat, but Satan's defeat would be final and forever and decisive. So God promises in the very first chapters of the story, the very, very beginning of the story, the arrival of this son of the woman who would save people and defeat the serpent, who tempted people into sin. It took a long time. It took a long time. Thousands of years. It took thousands of years. But God keeps his promises. In Galatians 4, 5, 4, 4, and 5, it says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, when our first ancestors separated themselves from God, th th there, was, there, was a, there was a separation. The, 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 the relationship was disruptured. It, it was, was ruptured. It was disrupted. And what, what humanity said, what, what Adam and Eve said in that moment was God, that it's like, like, you know, sometimes you hear these stories of kids going to court and emancipating themselves legally from their parents. And that's sort of like what Adam did. He said, God, I don't want you as my father. I don't want to be in a, a, a legal covenant relationship with you. And God said, fine, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. But God wasn't content for it to stay there. He wanted us back. He wanted you back. He wanted me back. And so he sent his son at the proper time, born of a woman, so that we might receive adoption, so that he could bring us back into his family. I know some of you are in seasons of waiting. You're in seasons of wondering, when is God going to show up in this situation? 
You wonder if God's going to show up, or maybe you believe theoretically that he's going to show up, but you don't believe he's going to show up for you. That's like Jesus when he is at, the, is at Bethany with Mary and Martha, and Lazarus has died. And, 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 and Mary, excuse me, Jesus is there, and, and he says, do you believe that you're, to, to, the, to, to these women that he loved, he said, do you believe that he will rise again? And they say, yes, I believe he will rise again at the resurrection, at the end time. And that Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And so we see there the disconnect was not that they didn't believe it theoretically, they didn't believe it personally. So maybe you are like, yes, I believe this theoretically, I know this theologically, I know this biblically, but you don't actually believe it for you. You don't actually believe that God will show up. But he always keeps his promises. Let me just comfort you with some scriptures from all throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy eleven fourteen. I will provide rain for your land at the proper time, the autumn and the spring rains, and you will harvest your grain, new wine and fresh oil. Joel 2.19, look, I'm about to send you new wine and fresh oil. You will be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. Luke, excuse me, Joel 2.25 through 27, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate. The young locust, the destroying locust, the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord is near. James 5, 7 and 8. Some of you are in seasons of feeling defeated. Maybe you feel like you've been betrayed or maybe you have been betrayed. Or maybe you yourself, you've just royally royally messed up. You have failed yourself and failed those who love you and who are depending on you. And you can't blame anyone else but yourself. Maybe it's just that life is just beat, beat you up with sickness or frustration or disappointment. Here's the beautiful thing to remember from the Christmas backstory, and that is God always wins, and if you belong to him, that no weapon formed against you shall stand, even the self-inflicted wounds. And if you're going to walk in that truth, you've got to fight discouragement with ammunition. You've got to have the word of God at, at the ready. Romans 8, 37 and 39, through 39. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. John 16, 33. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. 
Who is the one who conquers? The world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, 5. And when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with Christ and forgave all your trespasses and erased the certificate of debt and its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken this and nailed it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The serpent's head has been crushed. And that's just the prophecy of Jesus in the law. We also see him prophesied in the prophets. The most famous place, probably, Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. It's probably one you know. Once, once I start reading it, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. This prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Isaiah the prophet. It was a, a prophecy for that specific time, but it was a prophecy that more ultimately was a prophecy of the arrival of Jesus Christ in the womb of a virgin. And, and what, what, what that means, what the virgin conception means, is that the cycle of sin in the world has been interrupted for the first time. Because since that first rebellion, every person who has ever been born has been born with the genetic disease that we call sin. You don't have to, there's more evidence for the reality of sin than anything else in the world. All you have to do is watch the news or have a toddler. <laughs> the only people I know who don't believe in original sin are people who have never had a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five or six right? You don't have to teach them to sin. They're just naturally good at it. They're just naturally good at it. They're naturally sinners. My kids, your kids, our kids, you, me, we're all naturally sinners because we are born in sin. We're born with this genetic indwelling predisposition to rebel against authority and against God specifically. Because we're all born in the likeness of the first parents who fell into sin and passed on this disease to all of us. All of us except for one, that is. Jesus was born of a virgin. And so original sin doesn't stain his life. God creates a miracle in the womb of Mary, and so Jesus does not get his great-great-grandfather's genetic disease like everyone else does. Jesus breaks the cycle of sin. He's unstained. A friend of mine wrote, Christ's atoning work began with his virgin conception. The whole of the life of Jesus is necessary for his work of redemption. God's from the very, very beginning of the life of Jesus. He creates in the womb of Mary this perfect, sinless, little human who is also the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He's Jesus Christ, who is sinless, not just in action, but in nature. He is sinless, not just in what he does, but in who he is inside. He never disobeyed his parents. 
Now that, I mean, it's just a miracle, right? Not once. First time obedience every time. I just can't imagine what that would be like. It would be just, oh my goodness, Jesus was perfect. If God can do this, if he can create the perfect man in the, baby, in the womb of Mary, in Mary's womb as, 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 a, as a tiny little baby growing into a, a, a boy and then into a man, if he can do that, and then when this man is crucified, raise him from the dead. If God can do that, he can do anything. This is such good news because there, the, the cycle of sin and brokenness in our world has an expiration date. The reality is God requires, this is how God, this is God's requirement for our lives, is a life without sin. There's no part of our life where we can fudge a little bit and be acceptable in God's sight. It's a tapestry that's woven, and if you, I don't know if you've ever had uh, a piece of clothing where there's a thread that starts pulling, and you start pulling that thread, and the whole thing starts to fray. That's like one little thread of sin in your life starts to unravel the whole garment of your holiness in life, and we have all sinned. And God requires a sinless life, and there's only been one who ever did it the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. God requires a sinless life, and Jesus gave his sinless life so that we could receive redemption. It's like God hitting the reset button. You know, so often electronics, if you just turn it off and wait five seconds and turn it back on, it fixes. That's not just magic. It's, it's, it's designed that way. That, that when you turn off the power and start it back up, that it kind of resets to factory. Well, this is God is restarting humanity with Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary, as he foretold in Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before Jesus was born. This means no matter how stuck you are or how many ruts you find yourself falling into, there is hope to get out. There is hope for a better future. On a Thursday night, I'm teaching a class at a Trinity International University in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, I have the unfortunate experience that many of you have as well of driving on 95, which has been under construction, I think, since like 1447 B.C. <laughs> and it's so nice because they keep rearranging the lanes, and they grind up, you know, they grind up the stripes, and they got all these grooves, and something was up with my car, uh, and I didn't realize it until I was already driving, but my tire pressure was low in, in the front tires of my car, and so every groove, it was like my, my tires were like catching it, and I, I, was, I was having to like fight against the wheels because all these construction grooves and different si you know, levels of pavement, and my car was just tracking all over the road because it was finding these ruts and falling into them was low on air and it was it was and I was having to fight against it. And some of you that's how you feel like life is going for you. That you're just falling into these ruts, these old patterns, these old habits, these old sins that you thought you'd gotten rid of or that you've never been able to get rid of. And you're you're just you feel like your life is sort of like low pressure, low and, and you're in your and you're just can't see you're always fighting against it. And what the gospel means is, is not that God just gives you the ability to fight against it harder, is that he came and he transcended the whole thing and that your life is now seen in the righteousness of Christ if you are a Christian. 
and he's broken the cycle of sin. And he offers you a new start. Some of you, for the first time, have you never taken that step to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus? And that's the step you need to take today. Some of you need to just refresh and say, God, I just, I just need to reset and just, just thank you for what you've done for me. And start afresh and start again. And maybe, maybe on that connection card, that's the step you need to take to make that decision for the first time. Or maybe there's another step that you need to take and you just need, to, you just need to, to pause and ask God to help you walk in the newness of life that he's brought into the world through the womb of Mary in Jesus Christ. Finally, in the writings, sometimes called the Psalms, the third section of the scripture. Psalm 2. If you've got your Bibles or your app, you can go to Psalm 2. It's right in the middle or so, right about here. Just open in the middle. You probably get right there. No. Um, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Verse 1. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings... Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For His anger may ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in Him are happy. Now, in the original context, this was written a thousand years before Christ by King David. And, and, and God came to King David and he promised him uh, that he was going to be the king of his people Israel and all these nations that were all around that were threatening them, they were going to bow down and they were going to be subdued by David and David's military power and David's you know, governmental and political prowess. But ultimately, this wasn't about David. This was about God telling us that he actually wasn't just one but he was three in one. And he wasn't just father, but he was father, son, and Holy Spirit. That, that God the Father was going to send God the Son. And he was going to send him to earth to subdue all of his enemies and to bring refuge to all of his friends. Notice there in verse 7, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In Hebrews 1, Scripture says that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. And he's greater than angels. He's greater than any other created being. For which, To which of the angels did he ever say, Today I have begotten you. Today I have become your father. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God reveals to us his triune nature, and he also reveals to us his plan to subdue his enemies and to save his friends. 
So there's two, there's two responses that this psalm offers to you. 